This episode of TGC's Word of the Week is sponsored by the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Visit our historic campus and see how we prepare ministers of the gospel for faithful service. Learn more at sbts.edu visit. Rules don't establish a relationship. Rather, they assume that a relationship already exists. You see, my table manners example assumes there was a table fellowship which was happening there which needed to be maintained so that others will feel hospitable, they'll feel happy, they'll feel in communion with me. This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, Slaves, Sons and the Difference Grace Makes, was preached by Anthony Dondato at Kingdom People Church in Harare, Zimbabwe on July the 15th, 2018. The text is Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. Listen now to Anthony Dondato on slaves, sons, and the difference grace makes. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 to 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Keep the Sabbath holy. Exodus 31 verse 15. Don't eat pork. Leviticus 11, 7, Deuteronomy 14 verse 8. You shall tithe. Leviticus 27 verse 30. The Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, is really an area of much confusion in the church and especially among Christians today. Should we keep the Ten Commandments or should we not? Which part of the Old Testament should we keep? Which one is not relevant anymore? And especially with the Seventh-day Adventists and their emphasis on keeping Saturday, you tend to think, am I saved, am I not? Am I going to enter eternity, am I not? Does the Old Testament apply to us in full, or some parts don't? As you would have seen in the past few weeks from from the book of Galatians, some people had come into Galatia, and in entering Galatia, they had confused the Galatians with the same things that I've just already talked about. But at the heart of the issue was the issue of circumcision. They came in and said, unless you are circumcised, you are not really, really fully a Christian. Yes, you need to accept Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. Yes, you need to accept Jesus, but you also need to keep the Sabbath. Yes, you need to accept Jesus, but you need also to do one, two, three things. And Paul, in chapter 2 of Galatians, verse 11 to 12, he gives an example of whereby Cephas, whom we know is Peter, had come into Antioch. Before 
Some few other people, another group had come into Antioch. Peter himself was eating and fellowshipping with Gentiles in Antioch. But when other people, other Jews came into Antioch and began to say, you need to keep the Old Testament, he started to stop eating with these Gentiles. And Paul says, I faced Peter and I told him that what you are doing is hypocrisy. Because he was not living in light of the gospel of Jesus. So when we are talking about the issue of keeping the Old Testament or not, it's not a debate that has started today. It's a debate and an area of confusion from the time of the apostles until today. And maybe it will even surpass us as well to the future generations. Does it mean then God is confused? Or maybe it is us. Why is it like that? Why is it that it is always an area of contention? Well, I want to say three things that I think are the reasons why it is an area of struggle. There may be many more. It is an area of struggle because I think we like the law ourselves. The law resonates with our intuition. You see, our natural intuition of wanting to be in control and to fix and to earn what we get is what gets us into trouble many times. Our natural response to things and situations is what can I do about it? How can I fix it? What do I need to do to reach that position? Hence, the law actually provides us with something that is very plausible. It settles well with our intuition by listing in black and white do's and don'ts. And what do you expect if you do that? You should expect if you do that. And therefore, you and I can tick our boxes and measure our progress with ease. Secondly, we struggle with the issue of the law because of our culture. Our day-to-day -day life, from the day we came to know, we are told if you do A, it results in B. You can't expect something from nothing. School taught us, unless you study, you will not pass. Your output is dependent upon your input. And therefore, our culture is one where there's a list of things you need to do in order to get something. Ten steps to, to be rich. Five steps to a happy marriage. Hence, our culture has taught us, unless you do something, don't expect something. The law resonates with our culture of lists of to-dos and steps towards something. And lastly, number three, it resonates with religion. You see, every religion around us, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, African traditional religion, all we have to do in order to get something, there are steps or there are some things. Growing up in the village in Chimani Mani, we knew that around August, before it begins to rain, people were going to sing. I can't sing the songs here because they talk about male parts and female parts and everything. And if you are a man, you have to run away if that, that ceremony begins to happen. So people will always sing these songs heading to the chief. And this ceremony was what was going to bring rain. 
And believe you me, many times they will go singing and it will be scorching hot, but they'll come back and it will be raining and they're wet. And so I grew up confused. So is it this singing of these ridiculous things that makes the, the rain come? You see, that's the teaching in ATR. You need to do something to the chief and whatever they taught in that ceremony, that's what results in this. If you want protection, then you need to make your ancestors happy. If they are not happy, bad things are going to happen to you. There's always something that causes something, and unless you do something, something will not happen. Or will happen. The same with Islam. Unless you pray five times a day and keep Ramadan and forget about heaven. Religion teaches people what to do and what not to do in order to enter heaven or to reach whatever superior thing they need to get to. Is this how we should read the Old Testament? Is it a list of things that we should do so that we can be guaranteed of eternity? If we don't, then we're in trouble. Well, I think that's what chapter 3 is going to help us resolve. We're going to understand with clarity how the law relates to us, and even more, how it relates to Jesus Christ, and how we should read it and relate to it in the present day. I'll start from chapter 3, verse 1 to 22, and summarize it, because the argument begins there and builds all the way to 23. I know we have heard uh, the talks from those parts, but i just summarize so that we can build into our verse 23 today. It will be very quick. Paul, as he begins in chapter 3, he's very emotional. He actually begins by saying, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Why is Paul emotional? Why does he actually sound angry? Well, he gives you the reason there in verse 1. He continues, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You see, they had heard the wonderful news that Jesus died on the cross in your place. He paid the price for your sins. And what you need to do is to respond to him in faith. And that makes you a child of God, full stop. But now they dropped that. They had turned now to circumcision, keeping a Sabbath, all these things as things that are going to end them heaven. Things unless which if they do them, they cannot be sure of their, of, of their entering into the kingdom of God. They cannot be certain if heaven is going to be theirs, if they at all have eternal life. He continues using Abraham as an example. Who, after God made a promise to him, took God at his word, and God declared him righteous. He had done nothing. God had just said, I'm going to do one, two, three, four things by you. And he said, hallelujah, God, please do it. I trust you. And God said, before me, you are justified. You are holy. You are perfect before me just because you trusted me. That's verse 7. And then in verses 10 to 14, Paul helps us to note that 
obeying the law was never meant to lead to a right relationship with God. Neither was the law given to help restore man's relationship with God after the fall in Genesis 3. Rather, he then explains in verse 18 to 14 that Christ became a curse for you and me on his death on the cross because it is written, cursed is what? Is he who is hanged on a cross? And in his dying on the cross, he made a way for you and me to be reconciled to God and to be restored in relationship with him. And we see in verses 15 to 18 that the promise to Abraham was to him and to his seed, who is Christ, Paul tells us. And so the question comes, why then did God bother with giving the Jews the law? And he asked the question in verse 19 and verse 23. And that gets us to our passage. Because that's where the first point actually is. If you look at verse 19 and verse 23, it kind of says the same thing. The law was given because of men's sins or transgressions until the offspring with Jesus would come. And then chapter 3, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. You see, what Paul is meaning by saying that the law was given because of men's sins or transgressions, I think is what he meant in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He actually elaborates that phrase there. He writes, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When I was young, I visited my mother's brother's family. You see, this is English. In Shono, just say Sekur. But I don't know in English. So when I visited there, I had grown up, each one... you. Each one of us would get a plate and you eat from your own plate. But things change when you visit relatives, you know. So we went to, to visit Sekuru. And when we got there, four of us were given two plates. A mountain full of sadza and a, an ocean of meat and, 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 and soup and everything. And we were like, with my brother, how are we going to eat here? So and I realized all of us sat around washed our hands, and we had to eat from the, from the plate of sadza and from the same plate, all four of us. Anyway, we prayed, so I got into it. Sadza, into the soup, you eat. Well, you remain with sadza in your hand sometimes, isn't it? So again, you dip it into the soup and you eat. And people were looking at me weird, like, what is this guy doing? I'm like, I don't care, I'm hungry. <laughs> so I was eating. After the meal, then... Someone came to me um, and he said, Anthony, when you are eating with others, well, they were very kind. They didn't rebuke me in front of others. When you are eating with others from the same plate, you don't dip the same piece of salsa that you have beaten. And, and you, don't, you don't actually pick the meat, eat, and put it back in the plate. What you should do is you should take this, this, the rightful size of the salsa you want to eat, and you dip it, and you eat all of it. And don't lick your fingers, because you are going to dip in the same soup which others are what, are dipping their salsa. 
And if you take, take any relish, vegetables from that soup, you put in your hand. You don't pick with your fingers and put in your mouth. And then you eat and again you put, your, you put the vegetables in your hand so that you only dip for the soup and you get the vegetables from your hand. You need to respect the others and you need to eat healthily, in a healthy way. You see, I didn't know. So I caused offense to many people while I was really, really enjoying myself in the process. Until I was given the rules of eating with others, then it made sense to me what I had done and how wrong it was and how disrespectful and unhealthy to the other people. That's where the first point comes in. The law helps us know what sin is. Unless the law was, was given, we were not going to know if we are offending God or not, or if we are pleasing God or not, or what it means to live as God's people. Israel would not have known that. And so, when God comes down at Sinai, at that marriage at Sinai, God gave them those ten commandments, helping them to understand that this is what it means to be my bride. This is how you should live as my people. They needed a savior, yes, from their bondage under Pharaoh in Egypt. And God had delivered them from that bondage. But that, that was not their greatest need. What they needed the most was a restored relationship to their creator, who was God. But sin, their rebellion, their desire to live as they pleased, was against what God intended for men to do and to live by when he created men. And so God comes down and says, when I made men, before you rebelled from me, this is what it meant to be human. This is what it meant. This is how you were supposed to live. But you realize that when those laws were put there, no matter how much Israel wanted and tried to follow God's law, they always fell short. And so God ended up many times trying. He nearly destroyed them before they even reached Canaan. And even when they were in Canaan, he used many nations to discipline them. But it seems they never learned their lesson. Read the book of Judges. It's a cycle of obedience, disobedience, punishment, repentance. They always fell back until they exiled to Babylon. They needed Jesus. So when verse 23 is saying, before faith came, that is the faith in Jesus Christ, we, the Jews, were held captive under the Mosaic law, imprisoned until the coming faith that rests on the knowledge of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross would be revealed. You see, there's a sense in which laws of do's and don'ts take those who try and do them captive. Every time you are trying to make sure, where am I? Have I done everything that is expected of me? It's imprisonment. Because what happens when you fail to do them? You feel guilty. You feel sad. And the more you continue to fail, 
you're likely to give up. It's an imprisonment. It's not freedom. It's not, liber it's not liberating. Do's and don'ts actually place you into a context of captivity. Worse, if you have no help or ability to do it. I'll come to that. Point number two. The law was Israel's guardian until Christ. So, the law was given by God as a guardian in order that you and I, together with Israel, would be justified or made right with God or placed into a right relationship with God in Jesus Christ. In a sense, I looked for this word and I, I, felt, I found it finally. In a sense, Israel was the law's word. And the definition, I've put it up there, a word. Someone who is under a guardian. If someone is a child or someone is, uh, is young enough to make responsible decisions, they need the protection, they need the care, they need the guidance of a guardian in order to be able to not get hurt or harmed. So a guardian is there to protect, to teach, to train, and to care. The law, therefore, taught Israel that failure to live as God, Yahweh, taught them was sin. And that sin was punishable by death. And if you had sinned, the law again provided them with a temporary solution on how they could be restored to relationship with God through the sacrificial system. So either a dove has to die in your place, or a goat has to die in your place, Leviticus 19, the day of atonement, or a cow, a bull. So the firstborn, if you wanted your firstborn to be yours, then you had to sacrifice and to give an animal to God. Because all the firstborns belonged to God, even of a cow, or if even of your animals, they belong to God. Why? Because of the exodus and the animals that died when they left Egypt. So there was a temporary solution for the punishment whenever Israel disobeyed God. The law also provided Israel with a knowledge of what kind of a God they were serving. Who he was, why he had made the world as it was, what it meant to be his children, the cost of falling away from him. In all this, the law was in a way preparing not only Israel, but taking the whole world to a destiny where Christ would come and bring all mankind back into relationship with God. That gets us to point number three. Verse 24 to 25. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, verse 24, in order that we might be justified by faith, verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. But I want to dwell on verse 24 and 25 a little bit. Christ fulfills the law and restores us 
to a better permanent relationship with God, sons and daughters. You see, after Malachi, we begin Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I want you to see something in Matthew chapter 1. If you can open your Bibles, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the book of the genealogy or the tree, family tree of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, it then continues to talk about Abraham and the descendants and gives all the family tree. There is a continuity as soon as the New Testament begins. From the Old Testament, the promises to Abraham. So that when you read Matthew, you actually realize that this is not something independent and separate and divorced from the Old Testament. But it's the continuation of the same story and the same promises and actually a fulfillment of what God said he was going to do. You see, rules don't establish a relationship. Rather, they assume that a relationship already exists. I'll repeat it. Rules don't establish a relationship. Rather, they assume that a relationship already exists. You see, my table manners example assumes there was a table fellowship which was happening there, which needed to be maintained so that others will feel hospitable, they'll feel happy, they'll feel in communion with me. Israel's laws were based on the fact that God had redeemed them from the Egyptian slavery. And therefore, when you read Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, it begins by saying, I am the Lord who took you out of Egypt to belong to me. Therefore, one, two, three, four, five. Rules come where there's a relationship. You see, contracts, when you go to work, they work because there's an employer-employee relationship. Because of the nature of your relationship, you are expected to live in a certain way. I'll give an example. The difference between friends with benefits, cohabitation, and marriage illustrates this very well. You can't expect your friend with benefit to give to be the father of your, of your child or the mother of your child. Because as it is, it's friend with benefit. Not with children, not with responsibility, it's with benefit. And it's a selfish benefit. When an employee begins to come to work when they want and go whenever they want, you are at the risk of getting fired because you're not the owner of the business. You are expected to tag in when you come. You are expected to tag out when you leave. Even when you go to the toilet, you tag in and you tag out. Why? Because there's a relationship. And that relationship stipulates when, what you should do, when you should do it, and someone needs to know. And your presence is going to result in a pay <laughs> a bonus or nothing? Well, in Zimbabwe, sometimes it differs. <laughs> when you work, sometimes you don't get anything. 
Verse 25 to 27 helps us to understand this of what is happening. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You see, faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in Jesus Christ, brings us into a new relationship different to the relationship that was there in the Old Testament. The relationship that was established at Sinai with the redemption from Egypt was for Israel. But with Jesus coming, it establishes a fulfillment, a better and a greater relationship than that. If you go to chapter 4, verse 3 to 4, next week someone will, will elaborate more. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That helps us understand the picture of what God did. At the right time, it not happened by mistake. Ajnagwitika nepazamo. Ajnagwitika by surprise or by shock to God. God in his time, in his plan, in his story from Genesis, the old creation and the old heaven and the old earth to the new earth and the new heaven in Revelation 21. In that progress and development of story, when Rome was ruling, when, when Agrippa was there, when Pontius Pilate was ruling, when the Romans were in, in control, God set everything in place so that the time was conducive, so that the time was appropriate for Jesus to come. I need to say, nothing happens by mistake under the sun. The fact that you are in Zimbabwe, first when there was better checks, now when there are bond notes, we don't know what is coming next, is not by mistake. Before you run away, you need to ask God, should I run away or should I stay in Zimbabwe? Because there's a reason and a purpose and a goal for which God has placed you to be a Zimbabwean at this time and season. With its frustrations and pains and struggles. So Jesus was born in a time and a season and a place purposefully. And God sent him and when all the story of Jesus, sinless life, dying on the cross, painful as it was, but he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And I think we need to be praying the same prayer today. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. I have wanted to leave Zimbabwe many times. But every time I go back on my knees and say, Lord, should I leave? He says, you better stay because your work is still here. And my friends leave and they buy houses and they buy cars, and they do great things. And I'm like, Lord, but see, see where I am. God, in Jesus' death, established a relationship, a way for a relationship to be made with all of humanity. But you need to see this. We did not do anything. For Jesus to come. We did not send an application. We didn't ask God to send him. God did everything and even raised him. Scripture says God raised him from the dead. 
You see, we struggle with the way God works. We struggle with God's timings. We struggle with even understanding the time in which we are and we want to go back and bring in the Sabbath obediences and keeping the Old Testament and everything. And we are sometimes lazy to do the hard work of understanding the, tra- the transformation that happened when Jesus died and rose again and its implications for us who are living post-Jesus' resurrection. Because we need to read the Old Testament now through Jesus. Because if he had not come, we would not have a relationship with God. But because he's resurrected, we have a relationship with God through Jesus. And therefore, our presence in the kingdom of God is because of what God did through Jesus. And we, in Jesus, have a relationship with God because of Jesus, who has a relationship with God and has brought us into himself so that we too can have a relationship with the Father. If we were left to ourselves, we would not have a relationship with the Father because of sin. So the Father came to us, did everything possible, paid the price for our sins so that when he brings us to himself, it will not be like he's sweeping our sins under the carpet. The penalty for our sins was paid for. So when God brings us to himself, it is a justified way. It is a right way. Because the penalty has been paid for in Jesus. God said, there's a punishment for your sins. I'm going to pay for it. And when I've paid for it, in me, through Jesus, you can have a relationship again with me. So we are sons of God, not because we are gods, but because Jesus is the son of God who has brought us to himself and connected us to the father. And therefore he's the only mediator, not even the pastor, not the priest, not the prophet, not anyone can come between me and God but Jesus. Because no one else died and rose again but Jesus. And then it continues then, <laughs> you see, verse 27 reminds us something that is very, very, very important. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So the day we said, Lord, we understood what Jesus did and we said, Lord, forgive me. I disobeyed you. I was living as I pleased. It was far from what you desired for me to do. Please receive me because of Jesus and what he has done. That day, life changed. We were going this way, but God, in his sovereignty, not only changed my direction in life, but even more, changed my heart. To want to do what I did not want to do before. So when he's talking about baptism, Baptism was our physical expression of dying with Jesus to our old self that enjoyed pornography, that enjoyed adultery, that enjoyed stealing, that enjoyed gossip, that enjoyed all the other things which went wherever it wanted to go. To saying, now I'm not going to go where I want, but where you want. 
<laughs> Have we died to our old self? You see, <laughs> you realize that we want to still be in control and to choose where we want to go rather than to go where God wants us to go. Many times. Here it continues and says, you have put on Christ. In other words, we have put on the desire to forgive, to be selfless, to be generous, to be kind, to be self-controlled. And we don't do this because we can, but God has given us an enablement. The Holy Spirit when you repent, when you turn from going where you want to go, from living as the master of your own life and you submit to Jesus, he gives you the Holy Spirit. who enables you to hunger and thirst and desire to do good things, to be generous, to be kind, to be loving, to be selfless. He enables you to do that. Now, this is where the thing comes in. You and I did not do anything to get to that position, to get that Holy Spirit. But many times, we still want to do something. I'll go back to my three points. You see, the gospel which I've just elaborated to you is counterintuitive. It's counterculture and it's counterreligion. What do I mean? The gospel says God has done everything. Just receive it in faith. But we still want to do something so that we cannot, as if that will contribute to what God has done. It is counterculture because God says, I'll provide for you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. But culture says, unless you work, you will not have food. I'm not saying the gospel says, sit down, sit at home, relax and enjoy yourself and God will give you food. No, that's what it says. It says, whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. But what you should seek, it never says seek those. What you should seek is the gospel, is God's kingdom, is his righteousness. And all these will be added unto you. So the principle of being a Christian is God will provide for you. What you have is God's provision. It's not yours. You are a child of God and God knows that you need these things just like a bird will not fall from the sky, God will also provide for you. So do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, make your request known to God. And the peace of God will guard your heart. God will give you peace so that you can say it is well, even if in the home there's no food. Even when you don't have a job, you're going to say it is well because God wants me to be in Zimbabwe and God will help me to get married, to have a good home, to provide for my children, even when Zimbabwe is going down. But it takes knowing the relationship you have with the Father and what he expects of you and what he says of you. You see, the gospel is counter-cultural and is counter-religion. You don't need to do anything to earn eternal life. You don't need to do anything to please God. You don't need to do anything to be a child of God. You don't need to do anything. Just believe. Believe. Believe that he who died and rose again and says that I'm forgiven the moment I say, please forgive me, I'm a sinner. He gives me his Holy Spirit. And when he gives me his Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit will lead me and guide me into all truth. 
And it will place me into a community of loving brothers, loving sisters, loving mothers who are always to who always counsel, advise, guide, lead me, and hold my hand even when it is when it is difficult. Verse 28 says, when you are in that community, there's no more Jew or Greek. There's no more male or female. But all are one. Your identity from that day becomes the identity that Jesus gives you. Not your nationality. Not your sex. You see, you are no longer an African Christian, but a Christian African. It means how I relate even to my parents, even to my relatives, is defined by Christian first. My relationship with God and my African culture second or Western culture second. I'm no longer a Dandato first. I'm a child of God first and then a Dandato. So when Dandatos go contrary to God's word, I come and say, sorry, I can't do that. Why? Because there's a relationship that defines me more than this. And that's my relationship with Jesus. So this is not legitimizing homosexuality. There's no more male or female. This is using this verse without understanding the context into which Paul is, is speaking. Paul is speaking about people who are going back to circumcision and thinking that that will help them to, to be in a relationship with God. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Christ has done everything, and this place is into a new community with a new identity. And that identity upholds the distinctiveness of male responsibilities and male and female responsibilities. Marriage, therefore, is defined within this community by your relationship with God. Male and female marriage, not male and male. Are we together? If you enjoy proof texting, then you can pick this, this verse and run with it and make it speak whatever you want to speak. Why? Because you are still sitting on the throne. You still want to achieve your own ends. And so you use God's word to speak what he's not saying instead of submitting to God and letting God speak into your life. I know it's difficult, especially when attracted to the same, same sex. But you need to say, what my body desires and wants is far from what God says. And scripture says, amen to that. And then you say, Lord, help me, even though I desire this, to submit to you and say, you are my Lord and my Savior, and you enable me not to follow what I want. You know what? Everyone who is married here still sees young girls attractive. And you still want to say, hey, you know what? Can, can we go for lunch? But why don't you do that? You tell yourself, I have a relationship with this father. I can't do that. I have to be faithful to my wife. It's not that because you can't. In fact, we who are married, we are more experienced than you guys who are not yet married. We know what women need because we live with them every day. And you know, they are nagging. We know how to make them smile and laugh. So if it, is, comes, if it comes to competition, the married, the married guys are going to win. But the reason they don't do it is because there's someone who is Lord and Savior over their lives. They are sons and daughters of God. If we belong to Christ, then we are children of Abraham and heirs with him of the promise to Abraham, verse 29. We are and will truly be blessed for all eternity with him. 
in the new heavens and in the new earth. We are going to be with him and to see him and to ask him questions, all the questions that we have. And maybe we will not even ask those questions because we know the answers. You see, Jesus has risen victorious over sin and death. And your trusting, your putting your faith in him not only makes you a child of God, it makes you heir together with Christ of all the promises that God shares in his word to his children. And so you need, I need to have my complete confidence in Jesus, in him alone, to serve me now and to serve me on that day of judgment when it comes. But I'm not going to see it because I'm going to see the judgment of works. And there's an eternal inheritance, eternal inheritance that I'm going to be I'm assured of because of Jesus. Dear friends, the law helps helped Israel and helps us to realize how much we fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 9 to, 10, to 20. For Israel, the law helped her to learn to maintain a relationship with God. We had rescued her from Egypt and to live for him and to please him. All in the preparation for Christ's coming. However, God's promise to Abraham was also to his seed to bless all the nations through him. And that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In surrendering our lives to him, we are set free from bondage to sin, free from our rebellion towards God, to loving him, free to subsequently live for him, and free from even Satan's power. Jesus becomes our savior and our Lord. And God's promises of an eternal kingdom becomes ours. Our lives, dear friends, follow after Jesus' life as those in him reflecting and dispensing to those around us love, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Christ in us is seen and experienced in the world, in and through us. I pray that we may joyfully live to that end each and every day to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Please help me and help us all to live it with gratitude in our hearts for the finished work on the cross and help us not to enslave ourselves again to the Old Testament and to nullify it, but to know that it helps us to understand you more and helps us to live fully through Christ, your word. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's word.